This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 480, and you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some with a little trick. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Daniel Glass Show here only on Drummer's Resource. And this week we are covering part two of my uh, look at the Carnegie Hall famous Carnegie Hall Jazz Concert of 1938, starring the Benny Goodman Orchestra, but also an all-star cast of uh, swing all-stars. Um, and uh, as I said, the, this, this, as I said last week, this was a, originally an hour and 20 minute long rant on my part, you could say, although maybe it's just my excitement and passion. Uh, so I ended up cutting it into two parts, and this is part two. I talked a lot in the first part about um, some of the elements that made this important, this concert, um, and some of the the reasons why it's the first of its kind on many different levels. And I also talked about how it it really wasn't just about Benny Goodman. He he really brought in uh, many different aspects of jazz. He celebrated the, the 20 years that jazz had been around at that point in 1938, Jazz had been around for about 20 years, so through music, he celebrated a lot of the important artists uh, that had come in the earlier eras of jazz, and he also involved um, some all-stars from the Duke Ellington and Count Basie orchestras, two other really legendary band leaders. Um, And I talked a lot about how the fact that jazz was being played in Carnegie Hall was itself a big, big deal. So I want to pick it up uh, this week with part two, and we'll dig into... Uh, some of uh, the uh, other aspects that make this concert really unique, made this recording really unique, and uh, why you, as a listener, must check this out. So without further ado, here is part two. Um, I want to just talk a little bit more about the evolution of jazz, because I think it's important to understand how we get to big bands from small groups. Uh, I had mentioned that jazz started out as a small group kind of uh, uh, music. And when it first broke in the 1920s, it was primarily known as uh, a small group style. But what happens is that as uh, jazz becomes more formalized, they realize that, you know, instead of just having one clarinet or one saxophone or one trumpet or one trombone, you know, which would be the horns, Remember, we said uh, jazz comes from marching band. These are the same instruments used in a marching band. Um, Now, you you could create sections of these instruments. And so, you know, some uh, important early jazz arrangers, uh, a very important name being Fletcher Henderson, who's a big band leader who was highly revolutionary, pioneering, did not get the credit uh, he deserved, but he was an incredible arranger. And... So you begin to see how they would 
you know, the style of soloing in big bands was what was called polyph- polyphony, polyphonic, meaning multiple voices talking at once. And when you listen to New Orleans jazz, you hear the horns all kind of soloing in and around and through each other at the same time. Um, so what these arrangers started to do as jazz spread out of New Orleans, went up the Mississippi River, went to places Chicago, New York, Kansas City, uh, and out west to California, a huge jazz scene in the 20s in California, they began to say, well, let's, instead of just everybody freely soloing, let's have these sections now of you know, four or five saxophones, three trombones, four or five trumpets begin to work together. And uh, so... It becomes more sophisticated. They add more members. And of course, if you have bigger bands, remember, no amplification, so you can't just turn up an amp. If you have a bigger band, now you can play louder. You can fill a bigger hall. As swing becomes more popular, now these you know jazz bands become more more uh, rock star-like. Seeing a big band is a much more kind of big experience, I guess you could say, than just going and seeing a quartet or a quintet. So that allows the business of jazz to grow, right? And also, you know, the big, the sound of jazz and the big bands was, was a very positive sound. Jazz music was dance music. It was music of hope. And you have to remember that in the 1930s, the rise of the big bands was was the backdrop to the Great Depression. And then as we move into the 40s, the first half of the 40s, it was also the backdrop to the, the horrors of World War II. So between you know 1929 and the stock market crash in 1945 and the end of World War II and victory for the U.S., that was 16 years of, of bad times. And one of the things that really lifted people's spirits was the sound of jazz and the big bands. So... In the 1920s, again, jazz was represented more by a small group kind of a sound, although by the time you get to Chicago, the bands are getting bigger. Um, but in the 1930s, the really sort of much bigger bands emerge. And Benny, Benny's band, I think, only was, uh, at this point, I'm not sure, one, I'm going to count it up. One, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. 13, 14. So it was 13 to 14 piece big band plus singers. And we're going to talk about singers in a minute. Um, but, you know, it, it was a sizable band. And today, sort of a standard big band, when I played in the Brian Setzer Orchestra, we had four saxes, uh, sorry, five saxes, four trombones, that's nine, five uh, trumpets, so nine, nine and five is 14, and then guitar, bass, and drums. So it was a 17-piece big band. We didn't have a piano player. But 17, 18 pieces is kind of standard for a big band in the modern world. And most arrangers will arrange. And then your sax players will often double on clarinet or flute. Uh, or your baritone player might pick up uh, another another kind of, 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 uh, of horn. So, um, you know, things with, with, the, um, with arranging... By the time we get to 1935, become much more sophisticated. Now, you also have to realize that Benny Goodman, in the greater scheme of this, was known as the King of Swing. And again, you know, there were black bands, white bands. Uh, Duke Ellington had been around longer, um, but 
you know, a, a white guy ends up being called the King of Swing. In the 1920s, Paul Whiteman, who had an enormous band that was sort of one part classical orchestra, one part jazz band, he had strings and all kinds of stuff, uh, he, uh, he was called the King of Jazz in the 1920s. Now, you know, he, they got these titles more likely because they had the opportunity to be more, more widespread. But to his credit, Benny Goodman was, from day one, a real advocate in trying to promote jazz and to push the limits of what jazz was about. And he suffered a lot in his early career because he was trying to play what was called hot music, which was more up-tempo, uh, solo, you know, uh, much more sort of uh, hot soloing, lots of notes, what would sort of end up turning into what we would call bebop, uh, th- that style in the 1940s. But Benny Goodman in 1935 emerged as the the first big superstar of this new style called swing. It, swing's just another name for jazz as far as a music title. And we associate the vehicle that brought swing to the world as these big bands. And of course, Ellington was extremely popular. Count Basie, there were plenty of black band leaders that were popular. But because Benny was the one who really broke open using this, this new style of swing... Uh, he he really um, got the credit and and was called the King of Swing and you know if anybody deserved the title it was certainly him so we'll we'll talk more about about that and and about the full Benny Goodman big band shortly but I want to move on and talk about some of the other unique concept con- sort of unique elements of this concert that if you check out the album you'll learn about so we had the, the 20 years of jazz history we had this jam session with all these members of the ellington and basie band along with goodman band so sort of super powerhouse all-star kind of a a, a, a session um then though we also have what was known as the small groups and this is a really interesting Fa- uh, facet of the big band era that uh, maybe people don't know that much about today, but were certainly a popular element of this. Um, these big bands, you know, they would take a part of the show, and I know I've talked about this on the podcast, they would break things down, and they would just have a small group, maybe a trio, quartet, quintet, sextet, septet. Um, I believe Tommy Dorsey had the uh, Clam Bake Seven, so that was a seven-piece band. Um, uh, uh, Bob Crosby's small group was called the Bobcats. Um, uh, they all had small groups. And Benny Goodman was kind of, again, the leader, the vanguard in this. And he had the Benny Goodman trio, quartet, quintet, sextet at various points in his career. So that was always sort of a part of the show. So the original Benny Goodman trio consisted of Teddy Wilson who was not the regular piano player in the Goodman Orchestra. He was a special guest who had come out for these uh, trio outings. Benny on clarinet and Gene Krupa on drums. So piano, clarinet, and drums. Now, and there are several songs that the trio does in this concert. Now, you might ask yourself, what's missing here? And the answer from our modern perspective would be a bass player. So, interestingly... Many of these groups at the time did not use a bass player. And this always fascinated me. In a modern context today, we think about that every kind of rock or pop or jazz band, you got to have a bass player. 
But back then, you know, you would have piano players with a very strong left hand and you would have drummers with a very big bass drum and they would play, especially in the swing era, this four on the floor kind of a concept. And so that would, um, you know, that would cover the bottom end. You wouldn't need anything else. And indeed, when you listen to these, uh, you know, Benny Goodman trio sides, uh, songs, cuts on this record, and they do Body and Soul, they do China Boy, um, it, it, you don't miss a bass player at all, and it sounds great. So these, uh, these smaller sessions, and then they add one more person to this, to this trio, Lionel Hampton. And of course, Lionel Hampton... You probably have heard the name. He was one of the most famous uh, superstars of the swing era. He then kept modernizing what he was doing and kept going. And he was and he lived a very very long life. So he was still playing uh, into the 1990s. I'm pretty sure and into his 90s. Uh, he had tremendous energy. He played. He's known as a vibraphone player, which of course is a mallet instrument that was very popular in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, but he also was a tremendous drummer. Uh, he also could play piano, and he would play piano the way that he played the vibes, meaning that he would plunk with two fingers on the piano, so he would treat his two fingers as two mallets. So Lionel Hampton had a long and legendary career, but he, he got his start. He didn't really get his start, but he, he, got, he had his break into becoming a star when Benny Goodman called him to become a member of this quartet. And so the Benny Goodman... Big band orchestra, as it was called at that time, would had big hits, but also the trio and the quartet had big hits. Now, what's very interesting about this whole, particularly again with Benny Goodman, and another reason why I respect Benny Goodman and um, really give him a lot of credit, is that this quartet had two white members, Benny Goodman and Gene Krupa, and two black members. Uh, Lionel Hampton and Teddy Wilson on piano. This was a revelation, even in you know the North, which supposedly didn't have slavery anymore, was not legally segregated. Uh, it was not possible. It was societally frowned upon for whites and blacks to play together on stage. It did not happen. Maybe they would jam together behind the scenes. Maybe. There was some recording that went on because you couldn't see, obviously, who was there. But uh, particularly at a venue like Carnegie Hall of that stature, it was unthinkable to have a mixed-race band. And Benny said, this is my quartet. This is my trio. If you don't like it, I won't play there. And, of course, he was so popular that they, they bowed and they allowed that to happen. And that was, you know part of a, an enormous smashing of a glass ceiling that up to that point had kept blacks and whites from playing. And how stupid, right? I mean, it's jazz. It's a universal music. It's a, music has no color. Music has no morality. Music has no hatred. It's about let's get together and let's make great music. And why should your race or any other label or, you know, uh, preclude you from playing with somebody else. So this was a big milestone, the fact that this this um, mixed-race group was playing at Carnegie Hall. And so Benny really was the one that pushed that through. And after that, you saw you saw mixed-race mixed performing together, recording together, being part of each other's groups in, in all musical settings. 
So that that's really cool. Now, Gene Krupa, let's get to his participation on a lot of these because it's a smaller group. He's using brushes. And you really get to hear Krupa's outstanding use of brushwork here. Just like on a lot of the bigger band stuff, you get to hear him work that snare drum with the press rolls and the, the blocks and, uh, well, more on the rims. He does some great rim work, rim shot kind of work, stick shots, what we call you put one stick down on the drum and smack smack that stick with the other stick, creates like a cool, unusual rim shot type of sound. Uh, he uses his tom-toms beautifully. And what I have yet to mention about the small groups is that in general, it would make no sense to lug the drum set or to have these musicians spread out across the stage without all these empty chairs with the musicians that weren't there. So what they would do is the small group, the musicians would come forward and get, in the Goodman's case, get around the piano. So you would change the piano player out. Teddy Wilson would come out. You'd wheel the vibraphone out. And then there would be a second drum set and usually a smaller drum set that would already be set up that Krupa would run down and he would play on that. And again, all the bands of this period uh, have that kind of a setup. So um, you've got, uh, you've got, uh, uh, I have a great picture of the Bob Crosby band. And as I mentioned, the Bob Crosby band's small band that included drummer Ray Baduke, who's another great swing era drummer, uh, was called the Bobcats and, uh, there's a, a picture of the big band taken where you can see that second drum set of Ray Badukes in the front of the stage. And uh, I'll post some pictures from the Carnegie Hall show, and you can see, again, the two drum sets there. So just another cool thing about the swing concert. And when you listen to the small group stuff, you'll realize that it's a different drum set, and Krupa spends a lot of time playing with the brushes on his uh, rack tom. He had two rack toms. Uh, on that small kit. They're spread to the side. It's very awkward. They didn't really play fills the same way that we play them today, even though he had two mounted toms, uh, because uh, the way they were mounted was awkward. So I'll post some pictures. You can check it out. I don't want to get too much into technique and stuff at this point. But what's awesome is you've got Krupa playing uh, brushes. And just because he's playing brushes, he doesn't hold back. He really goes to town on some of the more up-tempo tunes. And of course, part of this new style of swing and big band that featured and allowed for longer improvisations was this, um, you know, ability of the musicians to really stretch out for the drummer to play out. It's super high energy. And these uh, songs they do, uh, China Boy is an incredible one. I Got Rhythm, incredible jam. Uh, Dizzy Spells, unbelievable, super fast. Some of them are trio, some are quartet with Lionel Hampton, but they're tremendously exciting. And uh, as I mentioned, um, uh, well, these don't, they, they aren't too long, but they're, they're, they're fantastic. They're some of the most exciting parts of the show, and you really get to see Krupa be featured and do his thing. And he rushes a little, and sometimes it's a little chaotic, but you get to understand why Krupa was so popular and the crowd is going crazy for his every move his every solo and the crowd is really in into these performances again this was when you listen to this you understand how close this is to what we would consider to be a modern type of a rock concert people playing crazy solos really fast ver, you know improvising showing off their virtuosic talents and the crowd roaring for every every solo a lot of times people say well why do i have to clap after jazz solos right that's sort of something that's become standardized today so somebody gets up and plays a solo and after they sit down everybody claps and you're like 
that wasn't, that was boring. Why do I, why should I, why do I have to clap? I don't clap all the time, you know, in other styles of music. So the reason that that happened is because of concerts like this. It was so exciting. It was so high energy. It was so intense that people were moved to cheer for every musician. And this sort of was, relates to something else I'm going to talk about, the next section of the concert, or not section, but element of the concert that I want to feature. And that is, uh, and we'll, we'll talk more about instrumentalists, as it were. So the next sort of factor I want to point out that struck me about this concert is that you hear ethnic music in this concert. And what I mean by that is you hear songs of an immigrant nature that probably would not have been included uh, on a bill at Carnegie Hall or anywhere else. So let me explain what I'm talking about. Um, You know, at this time, 1930s, America had just gone through and was continuing to go through an enormous influx of immigration. Um, in In the 1850s to the 1880s, a lot of Chinese came, but then they were literally banned. There was a ban on immigrants from China. But at the same time, 1870s, moving forward to the 20s and 30s, an enormous number of immigrants came from Europe. And you had Irish immigrants. You had Jewish immigrants coming from Eastern Europe. You had German immigrants. There was a lot of... um, you know, the Irish potato famine, you had pogroms in Eastern Europe where uh, Jews were constantly singled out and slaughtered uh, in their ghettos that were called shtetls, their, their little villages. Uh, there was huge amount of discrimination, anti-Semitism. Um, so, uh, you, you know, in Germany, there were, there was wars, there were famines, there were, there were, you know, things going on. At the same time, for the first time ever, um, travel and interconnectedness communication um, allowed for people to begin to move in large numbers. Uh, you know, they could, they could work their way across Europe, get on a steamship, come to a place like America, which was welcoming immigrants. Now, of course, this, this, there was, this was not easily accomplished in the same way that today there's a lot of tumult about immigration. What do we do? There are people flooding over our borders, infecting our society, dragging down our American way of life. All of these were used against Polish, Italian, German, uh, Irish, Jewish, uh, Asian immigrants coming to the United States. America was a very uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant country, WASP. A lot of these were Catholic immigrants. Uh, Jews had their own religion. Uh, people were darker in color, Italians. Um, and so these large immigrant groups were often met with a great disdain, a lot of prejudice. And uh, lived in ghettoized parts, neighborhoods within the city. So my mom was Jewish. She grew up in the 1940s and 50s in the south side of Philadelphia, which at that time was predominantly Italian, Jewish, and black. And each group had their own neighborhoods, sort of ghettoized neighborhoods, which we all know is a big part of what American society was all about. So if we think about someone like Benny Goodman, he also was uh, of Jewish uh, origin came from, uh, I believe, Russia. Many great swing musicians, including um, George uh, George Gershwin, uh, Cole, uh, uh, not Cole Porter, uh, Irving Berlin. Uh, these were famous composers. Uh, Artie Shaw was a Jewish immigrant. Benny Goodman. Uh, many, many uh, people that contributed to American entertainment uh, were from 
uh, uh, backgrounds. Gene Krupa, his family came from a Polish background. His father was literally a Polish immigrant. So these people were may have been born in America or came here when they were young, but they were very much part of immigrant communities that were basically very low on the totem pole or considered um, not equivalent. They were considered dirty people of color in a way, uh, and uh, there was a lot of prejudice against them. So for the for so this concert includes an Irish song called Loch Lomond. Today we know that song, you take the high road and I'll take the low road and I'll be in Scotland before you. And me and my true love will never meet again on the Bonnie Bonnie Banks of Loch Lomond. That is a, um, that is a, a, a folk song from Ireland. And Loch Lomond uh, is, is the lake. Maybe, maybe it's Scottish, I don't know. But in any case, it's from that part of the world. And it's a folk song. Uh, Loch being like Loch Ness, it's a, a lake. So the fact that you have a sort of a swing big band version of an Irish song, which was a big hit for Benny Goodman, by the way, was a big deal. It was a big deal. A lot of the great American musicals, uh, you know, come from Jewish folk songs uh, and Irish folk songs and these ethnic kinds of music. Another song that's featured on the Carnegie Hall concert is by Mirabis to Shane, which is a Yiddish song title, um, which, again, a Jewish folk song. And they make sure, and this, by the way, was a big hit for the very waspy Andrews sisters uh, around this same time. So the fact that now people are singing Yiddish and it's a big, huge hit across the country for these big band, you know, swing big band organizations is a pretty cool thing. Um, so that... And that version of By Mirabus Duchesne includes at the end like a breakdown of uh, what's called a freilach, which is um, another kind of Jewish ethnic music. Um, oh, God, it's totally fled my brain. Uh, klezmer, klezmer music. And it has this groove. So the, the swing groove is, de, you know, uh, uh, By Mirabus Duchesne. Typical kind of swing groove. But then they stop and they go into this freilach. Right? So suddenly you break into an Eastern European or Russian, you know, Jewish folk song. And the guy that's featured on it is Ziggy Elman, one of Benny's trumpet players, also Jewish. And the crowd goes bananas. And so, you know, it's sort of a, again, a reminder that not only are African-Americans and an integrated band being allowed, African-American style music being allowed, but these other immigrant groups who have been sort of systematically suppressed in American society and their music or their language or their folk songs being considered vulgar now being celebrated in a mainstream way in the most sort of um, elegant hall. It's a big deal. And here's Gene Krupa of Polish descent right in there doing that stuff. And as a footnote to this, what I might add is that, that, that Gene in the 1950s wrote a book called Modern and Authentic Drum Rhythms. Gene, of course, was a great proponent of education, and he wrote quite a few drum books and drum method books in his day. And this book, uh, I'm pretty sure it's from the 1950s. He, for a few years, Gene had a drum school in uh, New York City with Cozy Cole, believe it or not. The two of them ran a drum school together. I don't know how much they were there, if they were on the road all the time, but it was the, the Krupa Cole School of Drumming. And during that time, the two of them wrote a book together with a, another gentleman named William Kessler, 
who was probably the ghostwriter and actually wrote the book. But um, I don't know if any, people know who he was or can give me some more information about it. I'd love to hear it. But the book is called Modern and Authentic Drum Rhythms for Teacher, Student, and Professional. And the byline is The Secret Rhythm Tricks of the World's Outstanding Drummers. Does that sound kind of like somebody else's byline? Uh, you know, Jojo Mayer. Uh, the modern weapons, secret weapons of the hands or secret weapons, uh, similar kind of an idea. Hey, I'm going to give you the insight on all the tricks, right? So Jojo Mayer's DVD, secret weapons, one, the hands, secret weapons two, uh, the feet. And, uh, anyway, the, what's cool about this book is that there's a whole section. I, I was collecting all these instructional books for a while and uh, these old vintage ones. And there's a whole section on ethnic rhythms in this book. So he's got Polish polkas. He's got Latin rhythms, which, of course, first became popular in America again in the 1930s. The 1930s was a very welcoming time for a lot of America's ethnic groups that had you know, been spurned. And it was a really showing the face of America as it was and all these great contri- contributions that these ethnic groups made. So... Uh, you've got Latin American, Latin American rhythms. You've got, you know, polkas. You've got freilach. You've, you've got all these in a little section, and it's really neat. And I love that. And I was like, yeah, go Gene Krupa. That's cool. So I have just a couple more sections I'm going to touch on, and then we're going to wrap it up. So I've talked all, all about these different aspects and elements of this concert, which is which makes it a fabulous uh, experience to listen to. And now that you've listened to this podcast, I really hope that you uh, get out there and, and check this record out. Uh, I'm going to put a lot of links to different things in the show notes. So I hope you go to the show notes page on Drummer's Resource, uh, where the podcast is posted there, and click on some of the links and, and go listen to some of the stuff. The whole concert, I think, is up on YouTube, but go buy it and get the liner notes, because then you can really dig into all this detail and, and learn more about it. So the the last thing I want to talk about, which is really some of the greatest highlights of the record, are just Benny Goodman's big band uh, doing their thing and performing their hits of the time. We've talked about the small groups, the jam sessions, the, you know, the ethnic songs, all that kind of stuff. Oh, by the way, I might add, <laughs> uh, when Martha Tilton came out and sang Locke Lohman, it provoked five curtain calls and cries for an encore. So here's this Irish folk song getting five curtain calls. The other thing I wanted to mention is that there are very few vocal songs on this record. In fact, I'm just trying to think if there are any others beyond Loch Lomond and By Mirabus to Shane, which feature the female singer. And uh, I can't think of any off the top of my head. There might be, but all the main songs from this album, the most important ones, the ones that are remembered, are all instrumentals. And we have to, again, remember that so many people played instruments at this point in time that in the swing era, the predominant and important members of the big bands and almost all of the leaders were not vocalists. They were instrumentalists, and the featured members of the band were instrumentalists. And so, for example, in the Benny Goodman band, of course, Benny himself was a uh, virtuoso clarinet player. He could play all of the classical repertoire as well as the jazz repertoire. Uh, and his band introduced many of the most famous songs. So he was an incredible soloist. But he also had Harry James in his band, Gene Krupa in his band. Both Harry James and Gene Krupa would go on to have their own big bands, 
In fact, just a few months after this concert, they both left because they were becoming such popular sidemen that they struck out and created their own bands. The aforementioned Ziggy Elman, who played uh, By Mir Mr. Shane and the, the Freilach in the middle of it, uh, he went on to create, to, to be a, a star of his own. He was less famous than some of the other names that I mentioned, but he was a, a big name in the, in the swing, in this, in swing era. And I'm trying to look just quickly at some of the other people. Jess Stacy, who played in this band, was a, a big star of the 20s and 30s. Um, and just trying to think if there are any other folks here who went on to have their own bands. Certainly, both Teddy Wilson and Lionel Hampton, who were in the small group, would be very, very famous as band leaders. And Martha Tilton was a famous singer. But the, the reason I, this brings to mind, again, what makes this album special is that you that all the big hits are with the instrumentalists. And as I mentioned, uh, as I probably talked about in the, in the years past, the um, the these bands were so famous that people would know the names of every member the way they would know the mem- the names of every member of their favorite sports team and if you know one one musician left and went to a rival band or left and went out on his own this was big big discussion i think there were even trading cards of some kind although i can't remember for sure if that was true but there certainly were you know the the these bands were the most popular bands of the of the day so this is equivalent to lady gaga ariana grande uh or if we think about bands you know that are popular today uh you know muse or pick the name of any of these people know the names the fans know the names of all the people in the band and they follow the their favorite rock bands well it was the same thing in the swing hour, except you knew the names of all 14 or 17 members of the band and you would, um, you would, uh, um, uh, you know, follow them with great, great devotion and loyalty. And, and you'd get into fights with people about who was better. And so what's interesting is that the world war two, and this is a whole another topic of discussion, but that the, by the end of World War II, and a variety of things happened, the tables had turned, and the record companies began promoting singers more than they promoted uh, the instrumentalists. And this sort of spelled the beginning of the end for bands like jazz bands in general that, were, that, that played mostly instrumentals and featured virtuosic instrumentalists. Um, I might add that... Uh, um, you know, the singers would literally sit on the side of the band in that same picture that I'll put up of uh, of uh, the Bob uh, Bob Crosby band. You see four singers sitting on the side in um, uh, sitting on chairs and they would get up and they would walk up to the microphone. So when when you hear by Mirabis to Shane and. The band begins, by the way, all of these vocal tunes didn't start with the vocals. They would all begin with the band playing the melody first. And then after one time through the form, the vocalist would walk up to the mic and sing. So when you hear by Mirabis to Shane, you hear the band playing. And then sometime before the band finishes, there's this wild bunch of applause. And then the band plays for a bit. And then the singing starts. So the band, who obviously was aware of Martha Tilton, she was already a star at that point with Benny's band, when she gets up off her chair to walk to the microphone, that's when you hear this this big applause. So 
I just find this stuff interesting. You're probably rolling your eyes going, this guy's out of his mind. He's a total geek. But to me, this is exciting because I'm understanding why these, why we could say these were the rock bands of their era and how they did things, you know, and how that was different than how we do things today, but in so many ways, how it was similar to how we do things today. So the songs that I recommend where Benny's full band is playing is the opening tune, Don't Be That Way, which is just a great... It's as classic a notion of what this, these big bands were all about. And don't be that way. You've sort of got um, this idea of riffs happening. The horns are playing the main, the, sorry, the saxes are playing the melody, the main melody, ba ba doo ba doo. And then against them, the, trump, the, the trumpets are answering. So it's ba ba doo ba doo ba 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 doo ba doo ba doo ba doo ba 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 doo ba doo ba ba right and so you be, you see kind of how the big band operated these sections having conversations with themselves now instead of in the old new orleans style that they might do that same thing but it would be improvised and the and the you'd have the clarinet playing the melody and maybe the trombone playing around that and through that so now this is what these arrangements sound like then the trumpets get a the trombones get something on the b section Brr, they do these big swoops with their with their uh, slides so you know you've got a a b a and the arranger has thought all this through and they feature the different sections in different ways. And so it's, it's great. And they're, they're so tight from playing, you know, these bands played one nighters and they played theater shows, sometimes six, six half hour theater shows every day, starting at nine in the morning, finishing at 11 at night. Then they'd go to after hours jams. I mean, you can't believe the amount of work for musicians at this time and how much these big bands worked. Remember, most of these big bands got their start in the depression. There was no money and no jobs. So for a musician to get a gig where you're traveling and you get at least some kind of work and probably all the booze you could drink, you know, and, you know, in the Depression, of course, having access to booze was a cool thing for a lot of people. But even after the uh, Prohibition was, 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 they got rid of it in 31, um, you know, this, this was a, a way to live during a, a very Depression-era America. And so these musicians were out traveling. You could bring a large group of musicians with you because they didn't cost that much. They were willing to work for very little money. So uh, you've got uh, you know you've you've got all this happening. And don't be that way is just a great way to start that song. Um, so uh, and then you've got one o'clock jump, which is one of sort of the the Goodman bands and one of the most famous hits of the swing era. So that's a classic. Uh, and those two really uh, stand out. Another one with the full orchestra is called Life Goes to a Party, and it's just got great riffs. Uh, of course, the term riff uh, is something that originated with uh, sort of with Count Basie. The idea was that you could, it was a repeated figure. And nowadays we talk about guitar riffs, right? So you think about Smoke on the Water. Right? That's a guitar riff. Well, riff goes back to the big band era and a very popular riff that we would think of uh, from the big band era that most people know is In the Mood. Right? And I, I, I can't remember exactly what riff stands for. I want to say rhythm, rhythmic figure. 
but I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Um, but it's the idea of like a repeated figure, uh, that you hear over and over again. And you associate that with the melody of the song. And Count Basie took the riff to a whole new level with how he treated that in the context of a blues setting. So in the mood is a blues and it's just that same line. Then the chords change. Now you go to the four chord. Back to the one chord. Then the five chord. And then finally it wraps it up. So it's a it's a twelve bar blues, standard twelve bar blues, totally taken kind of from the bassy mold, perhaps. Uh, but that riff you just hear over and over again. They just change the notes based on what chord is going on underneath it. So there's a lot of riffing happening. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, that song life goes to party is great. And then of course, let's just go right to the, to the, to the heart of this, which is the last song of the concert. And I'll wrap it up here, of course, is sing, sing, sing. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this long diatribe, sing, sing, sing was recorded in 1936. The band toured with it and began to develop it getting rid of the vocal altogether and adding instrumental sections the the whole way through. And, um, and by the time you get to Carnegie Hall, which is two years later, they recorded the studio version 37, that's nine minutes. The Carnegie Hall version is 12 minutes and it is glorious. And you've got an incredible Harry James solo. You've got incredible Benny Goodman, couple of solos. You've got an incredible piano solo by Jess Stacy, which is considered sort of one of the most legendary solos among those who love and appreciate this style. He, they break the song way down. You know, a lot of people think, oh, Gene Krupa with the thundering, you know, toms. And of course, Krupa is playing in between all these sections of the song, all these solos. Uh, he never really takes a drum solo. And there's a lot of misconceptions that that Sing 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 is a drum solo, but it is him doing his Tom Tom thing that he developed that became, you know, popular. You hear the Tom Tom thing in everything from, uh, you know, Wipeout to Inagata De Vida to, uh, you know, a million other songs over time. That idea of the thundering Tom Tom groove is still with us today. And probably every band has some kind of song that starts with a Tom Tom figure or another, the Bo Diddley beat played on the Tom Toms, right? So this all really, I mean, it may have been around before Krupa, but he's the one who, you know, uh, catalyzed it and, and made it into a mainstream thing that then every preceding, uh, a rather succeeding generation of musicians and artists do that. And I, in my DVD, uh, the century project, I put a list of all the songs of the other swing bands that copied that thing. So there's golden wedding, uh, which oh, I can't remember the big band that did golden wedding. Uh, but, uh, Tommy, uh, buddy rich, who was a few years younger than, than Gene Krupa came along just a few years later. He does a big Tom something on Hawaiian war chant with Tommy Dorsey band. Um, and, uh, trying to think of some of the other Tom Tom intros that were around there. There's a, my list includes at least 10 of them. Uh, there's one called, uh, 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 I can't remember. I'd have to look up the list, but you'll, you'll, uh, you know, if you, if you check out my century project DVD, I talk about it there and, and all the, the list of songs that were inspired by Krupa. And then of course, as I mentioned, came forward all the way right up to today. And the Tom Tom is a great Tom keeping, a very timekeeping tool for us as drummers. But so sing, sing, sing is really the first example of that. And this 12 minute version is incredible. Uh, 
Krupa is featured doing all kinds of interesting fills, 1920s fills, 1930s style fills. He plays on the snare drum. There's one section for eight or 16 bars where he actually rides on one of his cymbals. Again, a very early usage of what would become the ride cymbal, standard. But he only does it on this 16 bars, and I'm not sure if he does it in the entire rest of the concert. It's just on this one section where I guess he felt like this would be appropriate behind a particular Benny Goodman solo. And um, so... You know, there you have it. And I, I've, I've gone on. I may actually decide to break this into two parts because it's an hour and 20 minutes, the, the bass recording. So I might break it into two parts. But uh, there you have it, the Benny Goodman. It's called literally the famous jazz concert at Carnegie Hall. Benny Goodman, the famous 1938 Carnegie Hall concert. Epic. Epic recording, and I always say this to people at clinics or when I talk to younger drummers or people who are not familiar with swing who think swing is just for grandparents. Check this album out. You will not be disappointed, and you will hear the glory of the 1930s swing era. That era really only lasted in its heyday about 10 years, 1935 to 1945. With the end of World War II, the swing era, swing music remained very popular, but that classic big band period is really those 10 years. Uh, you'll hear that era in all of its glory, uh, and you'll hear so many of the great musicians, and you'll hear Gene Krupa doing his thing in a way that you won't hear on any other group of recordings of that period, including all the original studio recordings. So thanks for hanging with me. Thanks for going on this journey with me through this wonderful album, this wonderful era. Open up your mind, open up your ears, and you know, understand that this older music has a lot more in common than, than we might think. All right, so thanks for joining me on the Drummer's Resource podcast, uh, the Daniel Glass Show. Uh, you can always follow me on Facebook. Um, you can you know, shoot me an email. I always love to hear your feedback. Let me know what you want to hear on future podcasts. And uh, let me know if you like what I'm doing, if you don't like what I'm doing. Sometimes I'm just throwing stuff out there and hoping people dig it. Uh, thanks, and we will see you next time around. Have a beautiful swinging day. Swingin day.